I'll confess, on a Cadet Sunday, it's tempting to try to shift focus and focus on their theme, but I decided to remain steady with what we've been doing as a church as of late and continuing our work through the book of John. And lately, we've been looking at the cross of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made there, and we continue that this morning by turning in John chapter 19, where we will be reading verses 31 through the end of the chapter. In your pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, that's found on page 1076, or as you can see, the words will be on the screen behind me where you can follow along there. Again, continuing in the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 19, beginning at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might, not, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen claws with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've had such a joyous service, but we have to take a difficult and strange transition immediately and acknowledge a reality that many of us often don't like to think about or look directly in the face. But that reality is that death is a terrible thing. I can remember vividly when I was the same age as Jackson, Jackson as a five-year-old. My parents called me and my older sister into their bedroom to explain to us that our great-grandmother had passed away and trying to give words that we could understand that we would never have that opportunity to see her again. That was the first person in my life that I knew and loved dearly that passed away. And yet, for me, that became a very common occurrence. And since then, grandparents... Young friends 
and family members, youth group leaders, congregation members, and in-laws have left this life, and I have grieved them. And as I've had the opportunity to journey and stare at the face of death over and over again, another terrible truth about the reality of death is the fact that there is no good way to die. Of those that I listed, some of them passed away suddenly and unexpectedly with heart attacks or suicide or car accidents. And to a certain extent, there was a comfort that they didn't have to suffer, but there was a special grief in not feeling like you were ready or prepared, and they were taken so suddenly and unexpectedly, and that grief added to that loss. But on the other hand, I've also walked with those that have battled cancer and languished in that disease and that terrible addition to grief that though you have the benefit of saying goodbye and being prepared for death when it comes, by the time it does come, that's all that you want. And your loved one hurts and suffers and languish, and you go from prayers of healing to prayers that God would just take them home. And you know that. You know the truth of that. I was just sitting here last week, and as I often do, just kind of scanning who's sitting here and looking around and being reminded of the different faces of the many widows and widowers, uh, children who have lost their parents and parents who have lost their children and all of the grief and the difficulty that goes along with that. And whenever that takes place, once again, we ask those very big and difficult questions. Why is this so? And why do we have to go through this terrible experience? And with all things important, the scripture gives us answers. All the way back in Genesis, after creating humanity and placing them in the Garden of Eden, we learn in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The devil denied that statement in his temptation of Eve. But after both Adam and Eve believed the devil's word over God's and they ate of the fruit of that tree, in the end, as it always does, God's word proved true. It wasn't instantaneous, but death was a new reality in God's now broken creation. As Romans 6.23 puts it so succinctly, for the wages of sin is death. Like earning money every time we work, every time we sin, what we have earned is our separation from life and our separation from God. Death is a consequence of our sin. Death is the punishment and the penalty of us living in rebellion against the God who gave us life. Well, as we continue our walk through John, having seen Jesus last week go through that terrible and awful experience of crucifixion, 
where he finally gave up his spirit, John continues the story by telling us what happens next. And once again, what we're going to do is look at and, and highlight some of the things that John emphasizes in this particular part of Scripture. We start by hearing again of the concerns that the Jews have of their own purity during this festival time. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and 22, uh, 21, verses 22 and 23, there was instructions about what should happen after someone is uh, given capital punishment. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Well, because of that command and the fear that the land would be defiled if these men remained on the tree as the sun was starting to set and the beginning of the Sabbath of this Passover week was about to come on, they wanted to get those bodies off of the cross so that the land wouldn't be defiled. And so what they do is they approach Pilate and they ask to speed the process up if they could break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross. Now to be abundantly clear, that was not an act of compassion where they would speed up the death process. It was just going to add agony. A great struggle of hanging from a cross is the difficulty of breathing. And every time you want to take a breath full of lung, you have to push up on the nails that are on your feet to to take that breath. Well, when your legs are broken, you both have too much pain and no ability to push up on those legs to take in that breath. And so your death will come quicker, but in much more agonizing pain. And so that's what they do. These soldiers, professionals, they go and they break the legs of the two criminals that were killed next to Jesus. But when they get to Jesus... These professional executioners who did this often realized that Jesus was already dead. And to be sure, they pierce the body of Jesus with a spear. And John tells us that the pierced body of his friend and rabbi lets out a mixture of blood and water. John seems to be highlighting these details for at least two important reasons. First of all, once again, we are seeing how the executioners are unwittingly fulfilling Scripture. John tells us that the Scripture had said not one of his bones would be broken. And what Scripture is being referred to is a little bit debated. We read for our call to worship from Psalm 34 where reference is made to that very statement. And that is one of the possibilities that God would preserve the bones of his servants. Another possibility seems that more people draw a parallel to is connection to the Passover lamb. When the Israelites were given instructions on how to prepare that Passover lamb to collect its blood and to eat it as a, a celebration and preparation for their exodus, they were instructed that not one bone of that lamb should be broken. And so many see that not only is this scripture being fulfilled in the fact that none of Jesus' bones were broken, 
But they're seeing again another connection that John is making between what Jesus is doing on the cross and the Passover lamb. Just as the lamb's death and blood would be used to spare the lives of the firstborn of the Israelites that painted that blood on the doorposts, so too all who look to the death and the blood of Jesus Christ would also be spared the consequences of their sin. John also then quotes another scripture from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that speaks about they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, a lot of people could say, well, that's such a minor detail. How is that fulfilling scripture? Looking on the one that they've pierced. But when you see Zechariah 12, 10 in the whole context of that passage, it's talking generally about this Messiah that would come, who would be a great king that would cleanse the sin of many. And so we do see, again, that Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. And in that, it's important to acknowledge the fact that God knew that all of this would happen. And as Jesus hung on the cross and then went from the cross to his tomb, we can say, as we said with the cadets, that God was in control, even through these hurtful, hard, sad, and tragic circumstances. But the other important reason why John seems to be including these details is to make sure that we know that Jesus was really dead. John emphasizes the fact that the professionals knew Jesus was dead. He emphasizes the fact that Jesus' body acted like a dead body would act. He emphasizes the fact that he was there and that he saw all of this with his own eyes and therefore he can be and is a reliable witness to all of this. Jesus was truly dead. There was no doubt about that. Now, because Jesus is dead, they got to take care of his body. Don't forget, they wanted him off the cross as soon as possible to not defile the land for themselves. And under normal circumstances, the Romans liked to keep the bodies up there for as long as possible. Again, the crucifixion was mainly meant as a deterrent, that as people walked by and they saw this body not only hanging there in life, but after death as the animals came and, and ate at the carcass, it would be a reminder of the consequences of their unlawful activity. And then whenever the body was taken down, the family did have the right to claim it, but very few often did. The reality is that most didn't want to be associated with someone who had been murdered by the state. And so most of the time what would happen is the body would be discarded in a mass grave or literally brought to the city dump and burned. And a lot of the reason for that was because, again, people didn't want to claim the bodies of the executed. They wanted no association with someone who had done such an awful thing that they had to be uh, worthy of capital punishment. But that's also why then it is surprising when we find out that after Jesus is dead, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich member of the Sanhedrin, comes forward to ask for the body of Jesus. 
Previously, he had kept his connection and interest with Jesus a secret because he feared how his fellow Jewish leaders would react to someone being interested in this man that they hated so much. But at the point of his death, even though now the risk had just increased for people to respond to him negatively, for his reputation now to be in shambles, for his future to be at jeopardy, nonetheless, Joseph was willing to step forward and identify himself that did want to be associated with Jesus. And while all the other leaders were worried about their own purity during this time of, of festival, he was willing to be unclean by touching the dead body of Christ. We also get reintroduced to Nicodemus. This Pharisee who had approached Jesus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. He too had kept his relationship with Jesus hidden, but at the point of his death, he too is willing to take that step. Both men taking big risks here, but it's notable and admirable that they're no longer concerned about themselves or how people will respond to them. They are more concerned about properly honoring the death of Jesus. Joseph makes sure that Jesus has a place to be buried with honor. A known, unique location. And Nicodemus provides an extravagant amount of spices with his burial. And what is happening here is actually pretty incredible. Just as John, in preparation for the cross, had painted the cross not as the great defeat of Jesus, but as the crowning glory of his service here on earth, so too we see in his burial, not Jesus being a victim and being discarded, but we see him being given a proper burial. The burial of a king. This is seen in this private, new, expensive tomb. And the excess of spices that he is given as he's laid to rest with respect. The burial of Jesus is not a point of defeat, but it is a point of victory. The king may be dead, but he is getting a kingly burial. Again, to the credit of the formerly secret disciples who took a big step of faith in that action. Now, most of this, again, is the what of all that happened after Jesus died. But again, the more important question to ponder is the why. Why did this all happen? And why is John emphasizing these things? First of all, as it has already been said, but let me just highlight briefly again. As we ask, who is this Jesus? We see more answers being given even in his death and burial. Jesus is the one that fulfills all the scriptures that pointed to the Messiah that would come. He is the new Passover lamb. He is the great king that would come to heal and cleanse the sins of many. He is the great king who is given the burial of a king. Because of what he has done, we should seek him and give our devotion to him, even if that means risking some of our own earthly reputation. John continues to point to the fact and to reveal the true identity of who Jesus was. Another thing that we have to recognize is that all of this is setting up what's going to be happening next. 
the original audience would know the next part of the story, as we do, that in the next chapter, what we are going to find is that Jesus comes out of that same tomb that he was just placed in. Now, of course, that is a very incredible, in many ways, unbelievable claim that though he had been dead, Jesus was resurrected and is risen from the dead. And because of that, because it's so unbelievable, people will look for a more natural and believable explanation for how that happened. And throughout history, many have theorized or postulated that, well, maybe what really happened was that Jesus never actually died. He just was really, really hurt. He looked dead, and they put him into the tomb, but he rested up for a couple of days, and then he came out never having died, just looking like he was resurrected. That was a claim that was going around when John wrote this gospel, and it's a claim that some make even to this very day. But what John wants to be abundantly clear is that is a completely unfounded claim that holds no water whatsoever. Without a doubt, Jesus was completely and utterly dead. Which means that when he comes back to life, he truly and rightly and completely comes back to life. But beyond all of that, there is the theological. Again, we come back to that question, why death? Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the confessions of our church, reflects on the reasons why Jesus died and was buried. And in looking at that Lord's Day in the past, I've emphasized the fact that Jesus didn't have to die. The reality is that in looking at those texts that I mentioned, death is a consequence in a response to the sins that we commit. But Jesus, being the perfect Son of God, never committed any of those sins, meaning he was not worthy of any of those death, of a death. He had not earned death because of any sin that he had done. And so the truth is, he didn't have to die. Unless he was going to accomplish the work that God had given to him. And in seeking to accomplish that work, he chose to die. Because if he didn't die, then you and I would have no hope for salvation. The grave would be our end. This life would be all that we had and all we could look forward to would be eternal separation from God. Because the penalty of death is that. But if the penalty of death is to be paid and overcome, Jesus was willing to do that. And so in order to be our substitute and to protect and save us from the consequences of our sins and our need to die, Jesus chose to die. And in choosing to die, he truly experienced all of death. And that's where we can hear the rest of the text that I quoted from the beginning of this sermon, Romans 6.23, that starts, for the wages of sin is death, but it continues but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through his death and burial, Jesus conquered death for us. 
and offers to all those that believe in him the promise and gift of eternal life in and with him. Death is a terrible thing. Too many of us know the truth of that all too well. We miss those that we have loved that are no longer with us, and we grieve over the why and the how in the, of their passings. And while we all recognize that we will one day face our own death and we will lose many that we love along the way, this text gives us hope. And when you face the terrible reality of death, no matter how it comes, the only comfort that we have in those dark moments is this truth from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, becoming a disciple of Jesus may add some risks, some insults to us on an earthly level. But the benefits are amazing. And these are the benefits that it recognizes that Jesus paid the penalty of death for you. And therefore your death, again as the catechism says, is just a passing into a new life. Where finally all of your sins and the struggles of this world are put behind us. And we can enter into the life that God created us to have from the very beginning for all eternity. So there's two messages to just bring home this morning. Number one, if you are someone who has never given your life to Jesus and accepted the gift and of the, the benefits of his death, do that today. Give your life to Christ. And as you think about your eventual death, know that he paid the penalty of that for you and receive that gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, your Lord. And for those of you who have, this is an opportunity to celebrate God. To thank him for that incredible gift and to live according to the motto of the cadets, to live for Jesus, to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Because we know where this is headed. Not in the defeat of the grave, but in the victory of the empty tomb. That's what we have to look forward to next week. Before then, let's bow our heads. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as much as we hate the reality of death, we know that it is a reality that we have brought on ourselves through our rebellion against you. And Father, we confess that as sinners, we have earned the wages of our sin, which is death. We also recognize that because you were a perfect Savior, you did not have to pay that penalty but you willingly chose to pay it on our behalf. Lord, thank you for that incredible gift. Thank you for going through the agony of the cross and for your burial. And Lord, as we thank you for that gift, may we not only recognize the benefits that it is for us, but may we live in the joy of those benefits. May we enjoy the gift of life that you have given to us for as long as we have it. But more importantly, may we use that gift to bless others and to point them toward you. To build your kingdom. To share the hope that we have in and through Jesus Christ. So that all may know of the incredible grace that you have given to us. Lord, thank you. May we celebrate your good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.